Graduation is an interesting time of life. I, I find it fascinating because, uh, you know, for those of us who have graduated and, and we're adults now, maybe when we see our kids graduating, we remember back to those years. And life, you know, it's like the world is your oyster at that point. It's this great moment in life where you're going to have the opportunity as a young person to kind of go attack the world. Your dreams are important. Uh, the world's very kind of malleable at that point. You're, you're deciding what you're going to do, where, um, where once you get older, you're kind of set in a track of life and you live it out. Um, it's just an interesting time of life. But one of the things that happens in this time of life, especially for kids who are raised in the church and grew up in the Christian faith, is they're going to go to college or to work. And in both of those places, respectfully, respectively, they're going to hear this statement at some point. I think it's almost universally heard by kids raised in the church once they get into academia or the workplace, and it's this. How can you be a Christian when there are stories in your Bible that are so terrible and your God lets these things happen? And they're like, what? There's bad stories in the Bible? And they feel overwhelmed and kind of like shell-shocked by it. Like, whoa, there's, there's hard stories in the Bible. And at the Foundry Church, we don't want you to be like, whoa, there, there's, there's difficult things in the Bible? We didn't know about this. And we want to talk about how to handle parts of the Bible that make us uncomfortable. Make no mistake, God in his scriptures is not uncomfortable with those stories. They're there for a reason, and they point something out. I really hope you took time this week to be in devotions, reading these stories, and they were uncomfortable stories, reading the scriptures, reading the devotions, and really kind of like wrestling with what's going on, because these are stories that you and I wouldn't think are in the Bible, and these are the stories that are referenced by people when they question Christians in colleges and in the workplace. How could a loving God let that happen, right? They say those kinds of things, but the reality of this is that the Bible, those people have a misunderstanding of scripture. They think Scripture is a book of rules and regulations. The Bible is this rules and regulations that you have to follow. And though there is some rules and regulations in the Bible, the law, primarily the Old Testament, that is not the main focus of the story. The real focus of the story in this is twofold. One, you and I, created in the image of God who loves us and created us that way, um, desired a relationship, and we willfully broke relationship and lived into a sinful nature. We are sinful from birth. Because of sin, we are different. And the story of Scripture is how broken, depraved, and horrible we as humans in our sinful nature can be. And then on the other side, how loving, faithful, and in pursuit of us, God is. God loves us. He chooses us. He continues to put his image into us when he knits us together in our mother's womb. He puts us together, and in Scripture, he eventually comes to reveal his plan to redeem our broken, sinful nature by the blood of Christ and his redemption story. These stories that we looked through this week and read through this week are real people, things that happened in real time, and it reveals reveals to you and to me some truths about who we are, about who we are and the, the identity that we have. And it, ha and it really affects how we view our relationship to God, us to God, and us to the world around us. 
There are several passages this past week that read like a horrible family drama. It was just, it was probably uncomfortable for you. I don't like reading these stories, but I read them because they're in scripture and they teach. And I think really the thing that kind of the image in my head that this triggers is this. This, this first verse that we read this week is like the little pebble. I want you to picture like the Rocky Mountains, you know, or the Swiss Alps. And like up on the top of these mountains, just a little pebble going click, click, and falling forward off the face of a mountain, but hitting a rock just right. And that bigger rock rustles loose and starts to roll, hitting a bigger rock. And the next thing you know, the entire mountainside is sloughing loose and moving down the mountain quicker and quicker with more force and more speed till it crashes into the valley floor and lays waste to whatever's in its path. This scripture that we're going to open with is really that first pebble that starts the avalanche, that wrecks a home, a family, generations of kings, and the kingdom pays a price too. It's from 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It says this, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men, and they and the whole Israelite army went out, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. That's that little pebble right there. David remained in Jerusalem. When I, when I use this next word, you may think like, what, what is that? Abdication. There's an abdication that takes place in this verse. At the time when kings go off to war, David stayed in Jerusalem. It actually has this haunt to it. It's if, if it was red and it was music, I would hear it in a minor key. It's just this haunting thing. At the time when kings go off to war, David sent his generals and his men and didn't go with them. He stayed behind. He abdicated his role as king over Israel. And how many disastrous decisions have you and I lived into by not recognizing the God-ordained seasons that we live in, right? We live in seasons of life. There's these seasons when you're, you know, baby, you, they really, kids change, babies, toddlers, they're growing so fast, but you go into seasons of life and it's really painful when you look at your life and you realize maybe you had a prolonged adolescence, right? You were immature and behaved as an adolescent for too long, and eventually in your adult years, adult years playing as an adolescent will get you in a lot of trouble. How many of the decisions and disastrous actions in your life have been done when you should have not remained in that season? God ordains seasons. In that scripture it says, in the spring when kings go off to war. There are times in life where necessary endings. We move on to what's next. Whether we like it or not, the season changes and we have to step into it and live into it. And when we don't, disastrous things happen. We find ourselves quite often making mistakes because staying in a season too long or staying in a situation, a very specific situation too long can cause us to isolate, be completely alone, vulnerable, and open to attack. And that's what happens to King David. David wasn't where he should be. He had too much idle time and too little on his mind. He was just where he shouldn't be. He wasn't doing what he should be doing. I've said this before, and I think we need to hear it, church. When temptation comes, our immediate um, kind of wrestling point is, but if I don't give in, what will I miss out? 
right? When I'm tempted to go to Chick-fil-A and enjoy a delicious, spicy chicken sandwich, and I'm like, oh, but it sounds so good, right? But there, there are times like, you know, you, you, I guess, I mean, according to my physician, you can have too much Chick-fil-A. Sometimes that temptation, if you give in, you're thinking, well, what will I miss, right? But the problem is we're asking the wrong question. What, if you want to look at something, you shouldn't. You're like, oh, but I'll miss out. And we feel like we're missing out. But I want you to hear this. That's the wrong question. What will I miss if I don't give in to the temptation? We should actually be asking, what are you going to miss if you do give in? What are you going to miss if you do give in to that temptation that is designed to keep you or prevent you from doing the thing God made you to do, called you to do, and gifted you to do? When we give in to that temptation, we abdicate. Abdication is an interesting word. It's a Roman word, and it was to disown or cut ties of responsibility with a son, a negligent son, to disinherit and push out to the margins of the world, someone who was once very dear to you and push out. To abdicate means I no longer take responsibility, accountability, and um, authority over this. I abdicate my role. That's, it's this old Roman word. And abdication is a, is a modern word as well. King Edward of Great Britain during the Great Depression when the world was reeling with economic turmoil and the Nazis were on the rise in in Europe and all this stuff. From January to December of 1936, King Edward was the monarch over the kingdom of Great Britain, the British Empire. He was the ruling monarch. He had a younger brother, George, right? And so King Edward, the heir, King George the Spare. King Edward fell in love with an American actress and there were some situations around it where he wasn't allowed to marry her and he abdicated the British throne. He actually resigned all title for him and all his descendants. When I, I read this abdication thing that, that was written that he signed and it said, I, um, I abdicate and I forfeit all rights and titles as the king of the British Empire for myself and all my descendants. Like, whoa. He abdicated. And the heir steps aside. The spare, King George, comes up. And the British Empire is still ruled by George's daughter, Queen Elizabeth. She's been on the throne, I know you think, like, since Victoria, but it's been since the mid-50s, right? She's been the monarch, and she was never supposed to be. That was not the line the kingdom would go in, but it did when someone abdicated. David abdicates his role. Sin is an abdication, an abdication of an identity that is given to you and me in Christ Jesus. Sin is an abdication of the identity, the role, and the purposes of God that we were given in Christ Jesus as a new creation. Abdication is the sin of not obeying God. And we talked about it last week, courageous obedience. It's a hallmark, it's a character trait of this church, of its members, and the way we live this life. Abdication, the sin of not obeying God. David didn't obey, he abdicated his responsibility. So what we know is that um, this abdication, when in the spring when kings go off to war, David sent Joab and all the men of Israel out and they laid waste to the Ammonites and they attacked um, Rabbah. But David remained behind in Jerusalem. That abdication started a story. 
So David is in Jerusalem with all the army out away. He's walking on his rooftop, and he looks down. He's got tons of idle time, and he starts looking at something he shouldn't. It was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah is one of his mighty men. He's been with David for decades, and Uriah is out fighting the Ammonites with the army where David should be. And David's looking down at his wife, and he likes her, and he calls for her. And this poor woman is brought to the king, and she has no choice. He's the king, and he takes advantage of that. She becomes pregnant, and David covers his sin by trying to get Uriah to come home, but none of those plans work out. So David sends a letter in Uriah's hand back to Joab, the commander, and he says, put Uriah at the very front of the the tip of the spear and put him up against the wall fighting. And when the fighting gets most fierce, pull back from him and let him die. And Uriah dies on the battlefield because of David's sin. David has swept his sin under the rug. He thinks he's covered his tracks. Then one day, there's a knock at the palace door, right? Because sin isn't just personal. Sin isn't something you do wrong and it doesn't really affect anybody else. Sin affects a lot more. We hear this a lot. If it's something I do in, in private and it's personal, who cares? Well, first of all, God cares, and it's not true that it's just personal. Clearly, we see how sin will tear a family apart. Look what it did to the family of Uriah and Bathsheba. It tears a family apart. David's lustful viewing caused adultery, murder, and then eventually the death of their infant son. It's a tragic story. It caused the disrespect of women in the family line of David. Women were treated poorly, and much more so after this event. And what it tells us is this, that when David's sin isn't dealt with in David's life, it continues on to the, very, to the moment where David's son Amnon assaults David's daughter, Tamar, who is very beautiful, and Amnon looked at her and desired her. Amnon was his, Amnon and Tamar were half-brothers and sisters, right? So we can look at this and see it was a dark story and eventually led to the rebellion of one son against David and against the kingdom. So David has stolen Bathsheba and taken her from her husband and then put her husband to death, thinking his private sin was buried deep underground. And then one day, on the palace door, the door is opened and the prophet Nathan comes in and he says to King David, well, let's just read it. First Samuel chapter 12, one to 10. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his family and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. So you can kind of get like this precious, like close relationship. Now a traveler came from to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of the sheep from his own flock to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man. He prepared it for the one who had come to him. David, now I love this. David's like, what? 
How can this be? He's super indignant and he's very upset. David burns with anger. He burns with anger against the man and he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. I cannot imagine what this next sentence sounds like. It says this, then Nathan said to David, you are that man. Like, can you imagine that just like, oh, because you know David, when he said that, David wasn't like, I wonder what he's referencing. He knows what he's done. You are that man. But Nathan doesn't even give a moment of pause. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house into your hand. I gave your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite. Now, I think this is interesting because David had someone else, kind of like a mob hit, right? Knock uh, Uriah out. He killed Uriah through someone else, but God doesn't absolve him of that. He says, you struck down Uriah the Hittite, that first person thing where David isn't absolved because he had Joab kill him. David is held responsible and said, he struck Uriah the Hittite down by the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Sin isn't personal. It affects everyone around us. And here's another thing. Sin isn't only physical. It's not just some physical thing. Look at what it says in this text. The sword will never depart from your house because you despised the Lord. Because you despised me. Matthew Henry's commentary says it so well, and I just want to read it from there because I think it's so so powerful. He says it this way. This is the spring, and this is the malignity of sin. That it, sin, is making light of the divine law and the divine lawmaker. As if the obligation of it were weak, the precepts of it trifling, and the threats of it not at all formidable. Let's translate that into our language. This is the place where um, the bubbling up, cancerous nature of sin is seen. And it makes light, it mocks the law of God and the God who wrote it. It mocks it. It mocks God. And it pretends that our obligation to, that our obligation, our commitment, our responsibility, our accountable lives lived that, that it's too weak to make us accountable. You think your obligation of the law, the obligations of the law were weak, and it's saying, you know, basically, you think that you don't have to do it. You, it's, not, it's not your responsibility, but the obligation is yours. 
The precepts of it were trifling. They were some little side thought. It was a little thought that didn't really matter when in fact it's the very words of God Almighty speaking into your life. It is no trifling word. It is the very living word of God and it wasn't trifling. It was the most important thing to take to heart. And then finally, the threats. It says the threat. you thought the threats of it were not formidable. In the law of God, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses puts the people of Israel on one mountain. He speaks to them from another and he tells them, if you don't follow this law, this is the judgment God will bring on you. And he lays out the judgments of God that will happen if they don't follow the law. And what it's saying in this is you think the threats aren't formidable. And what we're seeing in the life of David is they are very formidable. And because he despised the law of God and his walk with God, God would never let the sword depart from his house. It would never leave his house. Matthew Henry goes on to say, though no man ever wrote more honorably of the law of God than David did, yet in this instance he remains justly charged with contempt of God and his law. It's this tragic story, and it reminds me of last week. Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. Taking from someone else, hurting them to feed yourself is not okay, and it is not ignored. Your private sins are not ignored. And it's not just your physical sins. It's not just those things. It's the internal separation between you and God. It's not ignored. It's not a secret. And it is a big deal. God knows and he will deal with you in this. We know it to be true. God's children are precious to him. Read Matthew chapter 18, 1 to 9. And just remember what we are called to do with the little children. It's a dangerous and fearful warning that Jesus gave. Suffer the little children to come to me. We have to understand that God takes it very seriously. But we also know that the sin that has happened, we've all got sin in our lives, but we can't allow it to remain in our homes. We can't allow sin to remain in our homes because to do so is an abdication of your responsibility regardless of who brought the sin into your home. Regardless of how the sin got into your home, it has to be dealt with by you. By you because we look at King David here. And well, let me just tell you what happened after the prophet Nathan left the palace that day. First off, Nathan had said that the child conceived in that Bathsheba was going to have would die. And indeed, that child did pass away. So David has the grief of a father who has lost a child, but it wasn't done there because his other children, remember Amnon and his half-sister Tamar? Amnon tricks Tamar to come into his bedchamber and he assaults her in a way, he looks at her and assaults her in a way that a brother should not to his half-sister or to any woman. And it says that David, when he heard about it, burned with anger, but he did nothing. The shame of his own sin kept him from acting out and doing justice on behalf of his daughter Tamar. So who steps up? His son Absalom, his firstborn, David's firstborn son, is enraged with what happened to Tamar. And he wants vengeance on Amnon. And David forbids it. And after a few years, Absalom decides to throw a party. And David has his suspicions. What's going on here, you know? 
Absalom, what are you doing? But he lets things go. He doesn't confront it. He doesn't speak up. The shame of his own sin allows it to remain in their house, and it's going to define this life because what happens is Absalom gets Amnon there, and he kills him. Now David has lost two children, and he has utterly ignored the heartache, the grief, the shame, and the loss of Tamar. He's neglectful of her. She is wounded. She is wrecked. And her dad doesn't do anything. Like, look at the tragedy of this. Look at the heartache of this family. Because he allowed sin to remain in his home, and he abdicated his role. David was forgiven. He was forgiven. So it tells me this, whether or not you are responsible for the sin in your home, you are responsible to address it. If you are a mom or a dad or a child in a home and there is sin going on, you are responsible. Address it. Moms and dads, address generational sin. Don't give it a seat at the table. Don't give, it de- don't give death into your family by allowing sin to go unchecked because you're ashamed. Regardless of who brought it there, it must be dealt with by you. It must be addressed by you. David is forgiven, but his son dies. David is forgiven, but his other son, Amnon, dies, and Absalom becomes a murderer. David is forgiven, but Tamar is heartbroken and wrecked. And we are the same. It was David's own shame that kept him from being the forgiven father that he should have been. And you and I, Live in that same moment. We have shame and we don't address things, but we need to because those sins live generationally and that curse must be broken. God's child, God sent Jesus into the world to break the chain of of generational sin. His son died for us that we wouldn't be bound to the same sinful brokenness that ruined David's life. Jesus, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, bore all of our sin in order that we could have a new nature. He was put to death on a cross to pay for our sins. If we are forgiven and we receive this, but we continue to operate as being crippled by the chains of shame, that is our choice, not God's. Don't blame him for what you won't deal with. Don't blame God for what he has given you authority and victory over By the blood of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, it's not easy, but it must be done. We cannot permit the sins of the past to have a voice in our home. We must address it and put it to death, period. Have you ever heard someone say you sound just like your mother? Or, oh man, you look just like your dad? Like the other day, my parents were here for Josh's open house, and I was getting something out of the fridge. Of course, I was getting, yeah. It's like, whoa, shocker, Eric was at a feeding station. But I'm getting something out of the fridge. I think Bella shouted something to me. And I answered, and she's like, oh, you sound just like Grandpa Neil, you know? And I'm like, oh, I do. I do. I just, I can hear it sometimes. I can see how I go downstairs. I'm like, I'm my father's son. Like, you just do certain things. There are certain things that you do. I, Erica has a certain sway. She'll, she'll just do this thing, you know? And she'll stand and, like, do this. And, and it's the Marge sway. I mean, my mom-in-law, man, she's like a tree in the wind, right? She's just like this. And then there's Erica just next to her, just like, you know, just, I mean, they're the birds of a feather, right? You're just like your dot, dot, dot. 
There's a family resemblance. Have you ever seen somebody and had that happen? Or you see your mom and you go, oh my gosh, I do that too. And you realize that, that, um, that it's kind of a great moment sometimes when you see it and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I like that. But there are also times where it is painful. And maybe you look in the mirror and you see the same eyes that were cruel to you when you were little. And you're like, I will not be that person. Maybe you've lived under the wrath of um, someone who dealt with substance abuse. And, and you just, you can't, you don't want to repeat those, those sins. You don't want to live into that. Maybe you dealt with someone who fully neglected you, pretended you didn't exist, and took care of only themselves, and you were neglected and heartbroken and lonely. Maybe you dealt with physical assault, like, like someone hurt you. And physically, one of your caretakers like physically hurt you, and you've had to live with that. And um, there's a psychology, a statement in psychology, hurt people hurt people, right? It's just systems create systems. So you look at this, and you're like, oh, my goodness, I'm seeing the substance abuse. I'm seeing the neglect, the physical abuse. Maybe you've uh, dealt with verbal abuse. Maybe you've been sexually abused, and, and you, you, you begin to take part in those unhealthy patterns. Those are traits you do not want to repeat, and I want you to hear me. You are not bound to repeat them. They are not yours to live into. That sin is as severed as, as a tree limb, just cut it off. It will die and go away, but it takes a spirit-filled life to understand that that can happen. You feel cursed to, to repeat the sins of your father and your mother, but you are not. You are not cursed to that. You don't want them in your home, and they don't have to be there. The Holy Spirit in you can grow traits of your new family. The Holy Spirit living in you can grow the traits of your new family. God is your father, creator, sustainer, loving, caring, empathetic, and mindful. Those are all the things that other list wasn't. Jesus Christ is your brother. He is your brother, protecting, saving, caring, and giving good gifts and the gift he gave us was the Holy Spirit to know him, to experience him, not just in a superficial way, but in a transformative, like, fill your life up way. When we look at this and realize we can grow the traits of our new family, we're not bound to grow the destructive fruits of the abomination and sin of our past, that those can be severed from us and we can grow in the traits of Jesus Christ. How wonderful would it be, church, if we began to exhibit the traits of our divine family. If our church began to resemble God the Father and Jesus Christ because we are called, one of our values here is transformation. You are called to be transformed by the washing of the word, like grab those devotions. Grab your devotions on the way out in the buckets on Monday night, um, They'll give them to you at drive-in church. Come by the church um, any day in the week and you can get them from the west entrance airlock. Get in the word of God. Be washed in the word of God. Learn the language of your new family and know that God is speaking because people will look at you and they're like, it's still us, but we look, live, and um, I guess sound like Jesus. 
Like when I answer back, oh, it sounds like Grandpa Neil, there'll be times where people will be like, that was the kindest word ever spoken to me. And you, just because your nature has changed, won't realize you've been profound, won't realize you've been pastoral, won't realize how Christ-like you were in a simple word. In a simple word, because you're becoming more like Jesus. We are called to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That can only be done by the Holy Spirit and the washing of the word of God. Get into the word of God. Know him in order that your life can make him known. That people can look and see the family resemblance in you and you are no longer defined by the sinfulness that broke you. You are defined by the God who loved you, who created you, who pursued you, who chased after you, who called to you, who redeemed you, saved you, gave you his spirit, a purpose, and a brand new life. That is your definition. There's no generational sin and chain that can bind you so tight that God can't cut you loose. The question is, will you own your new life? Or will you abdicate to the shame of the past? We all have shame. Just don't let it silence the life you're called to live. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, bless your church. As we look into maybe some of the skeleton-filled closets of our own hearts and minds, we hear the words of the prophet David, Dan, uh, Nathan. You are that man. You are that woman. Yes, God, we own that we have tendencies that are very broken. But God, we reject that definition of us and grab on to these words that I am a Christian. I am a new creation in Christ. And the old is gone, and behold, the new has come. Come, Lord Jesus, and fill us with the newness of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in the powerful name of the one who saved us, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. These five weeks where we're spending really dialing in and talking about family are going to challenge us. And if you are sitting there today and you feel the awkward tension in your own home right now or in your own life and you're like, oh, because everybody knows there's things that need to be dealt with, but you don't know how, here's the thing. You don't, you don't have to know how. We as the church, the foundry, we, we have resources. And you can reach out to us. You can reach out right away. Um, you can reach out to care at foundrychurch.net. Email us and say, I need to talk to a counselor. We have a counselor who works with us on staff. Um, we have a great relationship with Winning at Home. And Dan Seaborn will be teaching a couple weeks during this series because, I mean, Dan, it's Winning at Home, right? It's awesome. So there's those where you have those resources. We don't want you to feel like you have to go it alone. We have a care team that spends time praying. And if you just have a prayer request, pray for my family as we deal with some of these things from the past. The prayer team will just pray for you. There'll be people praying for you and your family every day throughout the day so that you can handle this. We believe that the church belongs in the home, that the gospel is told by the parents best. They live it out and the kids see it. And you're not gonna be a failure as a parent for naming brokenness. You're going to be their champion when you name brokenness and live into the only thing that can make you whole. So I invite you, don't be ashamed. Don't let shame scream louder than hope. And our hope is in Jesus Christ alone. 
reach out to us at the Foundry Church. If you need someone to walk with you in this time, we will not neglect the opportunity to do it. We count it a privilege and an honor to walk together this road of Christian life. In the good things, and there's some great things, and in the bad things, and there's some jacked up stuff that happens in our families, and we don't have to pretend they don't. They do, and they need to be dealt with so that you don't abdicate the role you're called to. God, this life is a gift. And we have to embrace the gift. And what comes with that is a strong, resolute determination not to let the brokenness of our past define the future we have in Christ. That past is not stronger than Christ. His blood broke the chains of it. I invite you, reach out if you need help or if you just need to turn the TV off right now and turn and talk to one another and have that family conversation, we'd love to hear the story of it. You can share it with us because we want to celebrate with you as families as you grow into the image together of Jesus Christ in your home. Praise God that this work is going on. As you go about it, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord, like a father, turn his face towards you and give you his peace. In this time, maybe it's a little unsettling, may the peace of Christ guard your heart and mind as you go. Friends, church is over. You can go back to your living room. Yeah, that seems good to me. You're in your living room. Have a great day, guys. Grace and peace.